Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and go with me to Mark chapter number 14, the book of Mark and chapter number 14 this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word, and we would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us. How you'll find your place is look across the top of the page for the word Mark. And so we're going to be Mark chapter number 14 this morning, and we're going to be reading verse number 12 all the way down to verse number 21. So Mark chapter 14, verse 12 to verse 21. If you found your place and if you're willing and able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God? Mark chapter 14... And verse number 12, down to verse 21. Before I read the passage of Scripture, let me start with just a question. What do you know about Judas Iscariot? It's what we've been looking at in the last few weeks, been contrasting, which is really what we're given in this passage, a contrast between Mary and Judas. How Mary chose to live a life of selfless devotion to Christ and how Joseph and how Judas rather chose to live a life of selfishness a selfless life in devotion to Christ is never wasted nothing done for Christ is ever lost but a selfish life a life spent on self on what self wants, on what self thinks, on my ideas or my ways is is a wasted life all around. That's what you're finding here in this passage. Verse 12, And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover. So just pause here for a second and let me help you understand something. This is Passover, which was a celebration that the Jews had annually. We're going to look more at, in detail next week at the last Passover, which is what this is. It's the last Passover and it's the first Lord's Supper. So next week, that's what we'll do. We'll observe the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of the service next Sunday morning. So what I just need you to do for a second is just remember, this is the Passover meal. They've already killed it. And we'll see more next week on what all of that entails. But, but notice we get kind of a side story that while they're at this Passover, Jesus is highlighting someone in particular. Notice verse 13. And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber? Where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room. Finished and prepared, there make ready for us. And his disciples went forth. They came into the city and they found as he had said unto them. 
And they made ready the Passover. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful. And said unto him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Look, look here. Notice how no one said, it's him. It's her. For the, for the most part, the disciples have great spiritual awareness. I wonder this morning, do you have a, a spiritual awareness Is it I? You know how we handle most of our problems? Not with the question, is it I? But with the question, it is her. It was him. It was them. They say, is it I? And he answered and he said unto them, it is one of the twelve. Think about that for a second. It's one of the twelve. Those 12 apostles, those first disciples, those that went with Jesus for three and a half years in ministry. It's one of the 12 that dippeth with me in the dish. So imagine bowls across the table, the different dips that were available. This would have been some kind of vegetable concoction with oil and they would have broke the bread and they would have dipped it into this as they ate it. You and I would understand it as chips and salsa, okay? <laughs> Lots of salsa for the whole table. And Jesus says, it's one that dippeth with me. So it's not the guy at the end. It's the one that dips with me. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word in our lives. And teach us lessons that you would have for us. Give us an awareness of who we are and who you are. And cause us to respond accordingly. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I want you to understand something that's happening in this text. What you're getting from verse 12, even all the way down to verse 21, what you're getting is that Christ is letting his disciples know that he knew. Do not, do not miss that truth. Christ is letting the disciples know that Christ himself knew. That when Jesus had selected Judas to follow him as a disciple, as an apostle, that it was not a mistake. This was, this was not a mistake in judgment. In fact, this betrayal, as it is, was a part of God's plan all along. You'll notice it says in verse 21... The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of 
him. In other words, Jesus is not caught by surprise at what Judas is going to do. Was Jesus disappointed in what Judas did? Certainly. Was Jesus heartbroken over what Judas did? Most definitely. Was Jesus surprised at what Judas did? No. And I want you to think of this for a second. Because at this point in the supper, not only has Jesus not pointed the finger at Judas and said, Everybody, it's this guy right here. But Jesus had gone even beyond that in that he still invited Judas to the supper. And he goes beyond even that in that he maintains close relationship and proximity to Judas. He isn't putting him at the end of the table. He isn't leaving him outside. And Jesus goes even farther than that in that he washed Judas's feet himself. Now, if you knew that one of your close and trusted friends was going to betray you by the end of the day, would you do any of those things? Would you wash their feet? Would you have dinner with them? Would you not point them out to everyone around you? Would you not begin to discredit and devalue who they were or what they have done? Would you not stand up at the table and say, uh, let me have your attention, ting, ting, ting. Let me have your attention. This guy is a bad guy. No, of course you would. And of course I would. But what we are seeing from Jesus here, by announcing what is happening, we are seeing several things. We are seeing first that Jesus is in full control. He is not a helpless victim. This is not some unsuspected betrayal. This is not some unidentified treachery. No, no. Christ is reassuring his disciples and Christ is reassuring you and me that he is in full control. And what he is doing with the disciples and what he is doing for you and for me is he is pointing out when you see Judas's work, you need to know that this is actually the work of God. When you see this betrayal, do not assume that somehow I have miscalculated who Judas was. Do not assume that somehow I did not see into the intent of his heart. Do not assume that somehow I am not the full son of God. No, no, what, Judas, what Jesus is doing is he is reassuring his disciples, when you see Judas's work, you need to understand that this is in fact the work of God. And I and my Father are one. This is in line with what has been written. But what you also need to understand is you need to understand that this is Jesus giving Judas another choice. And this is what I really want to point out for you this morning. Judas had a choice. I believe all the way through this final supper, Jesus is giving, he is showing, he is offering to Judas love and mercy and grace and kindness and patience. Imagine the grace of Jesus that although he knows what Judas is going to do, 
A few moments before this, he's washing the betrayer's feet. And imagine the depravity of Judas' heart. The wickedness of Judas' heart. And that although he had just had his feet washed by Jesus himself, he knew in his mind what he was going to do all along. We saw this a few weeks ago. He had already decided that he was looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So notice a few things here about Judas. John says in his gospel, Judas Iscariot, this is how he identifies him. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ. What else do you need to say about him? And truly, that moment was the defining moment in the life of Judas. That's what he would be known by, not just by John and Peter, the other disciples, but that's what he would be known as even in the scripture. And here we are, centuries, thousands of years later, and this is how Judas is known, the man who betrayed Christ. But here's what I want you to think of with Judas. In John chapter 12, it says that Judas himself was a thief. That Judas was a thief all along the way. That Judas had been caught pilfering the money box. And now it's simply revealing itself for who he is. Judas was a man, three things. First, Judas was a man who was caught in sin. Judas was a man who was caught in sin. If you, if you assume that Mark chapter 14 is the first time that Judas is greedy covetous, selfish heart reveals itself, then you are wrong. John is saying we already knew this about him. That's why they call him a thief. They call him a thief because he was taking money out of the box. We got the offering boxes on the back wall. Guess what? You have one thing to do with your offering if you're walking out. You can put it in. But let me tell you what you cannot do with the offering box in the back. You cannot take money out. It's a one-way street. It goes into the box. That's it. And Judas has been found not just putting the money in the box, but he's found taking it out. And Judas right there begins in his heart to sin against God because of greed, because of selfishness, because of covetousness. And it is a reminder that here at the end, all you are seeing is the full result of who Judas really was. He was a man caught in sin, and it serves as a reminder that sin enslaves us. That when we do not deal with our sin, that when we respond to our own sin, as Judas had been doing all along, that I believe that Judas was thinking, I can stop this at any time. And I only took the money out because I had a need. And it wouldn't have happened had it not been this way. I believe that Judas had found all kinds of justification for why his sin was okay. And Judas serves as this great example of the person who says, I I'm just doing this this one time. It's not going to happen again. I can stop whenever I want. And the lesson from Judas is, 
No, you can't. Because you never just do sin and move on. You never just commit sin and then move away from sin as if it's no big deal. No, no, no. Sin commits you. Sin holds you. Sin takes you. Sin does you. And hear me, friend, if you think for a second that you can bring sin into your heart, into your life, and then just walk away from it of your own power and of your own strength without the, without the forgiving grace of an almighty, all-knowing God, then you do not know the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You don't understand how strong sin is in the human heart. You do not live with a self, a spiritual self-awareness. You're not finding yourself like the disciples. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And sin enslaves. And Judas is a man who is caught into, into sin. And let me tell you this, not only does sin enslave, not only can you not control sin, not only does sin control you, but listen, unconfessed sin changes you. Unconfessed sin changes you. We could do a thousand illustrations from this, from the text. I'll, simple, I'll simply offer you one. You remember the man David in the Bible? David, the Bible says David's known for, for several things, primarily as a man after God's own heart. But there's a season in David's life where he sinned against the Lord. He was struck with conviction of his sin. And yet instead of, instead of confessing his sin to God, instead of turning from his sin, instead of recognizing his responsibility in the sin, what David does is David sins for the husband of Bathsheba. He brings her to his house. He tries to get him to go in to see her. He refuses to do so. And David, caught, enslaved in the trap of his own sin, begins to wind himself up as sin changes him from a servant shepherd king to an adulterating murderer sin particularly unconfessed sin changes you it's terrifying to think about the person of Judas Judas who of his own volition of his own free will chose to go after Christ you think when Judas decided to follow after Jesus, that Judas began that journey with this thought in his mind, I am going to sell him to some evil men for 30 pieces of silver and see to his death. Of course he didn't. And yet that's exactly where Judas ends up in Mark chapter 14. And how could he do such a thing? How he could do such a thing is because he believed that all along the way he was in control of his own sin. He believed all along the way that he could just hit the brakes whenever he wanted. That he could walk away from it at any time. And yet what we are seeing here is that sin enslaves. And what we are seeing here is that unconfessed sin. It will change who we are. Judas finally though in this point serves as a great reminder that as sinners, we need more than just a good example to be saved from our sin. What we need is a rescuer. What we need is a savior. What we need is a redeemer. 
What we need is someone who is untainted by the sin of human nature. And what we need is someone who is untainted by the sin of human choice. What we need is someone who is without sin, who to enter into sin for us and pay the price that sin demands over our souls. And the good news this morning is this, Jesus Christ is that man. Jesus was without sin, the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, God eternal. God who always was, God who always is, God who will always be. And the Bible teaches us in Philippians that Jesus put on a human flesh, that he became a man for us, that he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death. He was not obligated unto death. You and I are obligated to death. Do you know why? Because the wages of sin is death. You and I have sinned. You and I are obligated to it. We don't have a choice. We must die because we are sinners. Christ had a choice. He was not obligated to death. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and that he laid his life down to set us free from sin. If nothing else, this morning shows you the power that sin has in the heart and life of individuals. Let that alone stand as the, as the true north star of the power that sin has in our lives. That without Christ, we have no hope. Without the Son of God, we have no hope. We are bound in our sin. If there were any other way, if there were any other possibility, if there were any other choice, if there were any other cup Jesus prays at the end of this text, then let's drink of that cup. But there is no other cup. There is no other way except through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And aren't you thankful this morning that Christ, knowing all of our own sin, knowing everything about me and knowing everything about you, he gladly laid down his life on the cross for us. Judas is a man caught in sin, enslaved by it, tied up by it, changed by it. And I'm wondering this morning, are you finding yourself this morning caught in sin? Can't put that bottle down. Can't walk away from those lustful thoughts. Can't get away from that greedy heart. Can't stop lying. You find yourself this morning caught in sin? Here is the answer. Here is the remedy for sin. Run to Jesus Christ who will set you free from it. Who will set you free from your sin. And Judas is a man caught in sin. But let me show you something else about Judas. Second, Judas was called an apostle. Notice this. Look at verse 18. As they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eat with me shall betray me. Skip down to verse number 20. And he answered and he said unto them, It is one of the twelve. That dippeth with me in the dish. It's one of the twelve. That's like saying. It's one of the staff. It's one of the pastors. It's one of the deacons. 
It's one of the teachers. It's one of the choir members. It's, it's one of the pillars of the church. It's one of the twelve. You remember what those twelve had seen? All of Jesus' miracles, both public and private. Do you remember what all the twelve, do you remember what they heard? All of Jesus' teaching from his own mouth, both public and private. Do you remember what the twelve had seen? It's seen Jesus on his knees time and time again on mountaintops and backs of boats, in the, in the garden, in the rooms, in the villages. They had seen him conversing with God, his father. They heard him pray. They heard him talk. It's one of the twelve. Jesus shows us that even among the followers of Jesus Christ, we can expect hypocrites. You know what a hypocrite is, don't you? How many of you know what a hypocrite is? Let me see, raise your hand. How many of you want to point one out in the church? No, don't do that. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something on the outside that they know themselves not to be on the inside. We would, we would say something like, fake. Pretending to be something out here that you know you are not in here. A, a, a hypocrite is not someone who is simply imperfect. In fact, people, saved and unsaved, accept the fact that other people are imperfect. Hypocrites aren't simply imperfect. Hypocrites are imposters. They act very spiritual, but they in fact, in the heart, are not spiritual at all. They act as if they have a great relationship with God, but they in fact do not know God at all. They act as if they are very, very religious, very pious, but in fact, they haven't opened the Bible on their own at all. They act as if they are being led by the Spirit of God, when in fact they are quenching the Holy Spirit of God by having an attitude or a conversation that is against the very Word of God. A hypocrite is not someone who is imperfect. A hypocrite is someone who is an imposter. That is the difference. And here's the good news. The good news from the very beginning. There have been hypocrites. Sometimes people will say, well, I don't go to church. I don't do that Christian thing because, because of hypocrites. Well, can I just tell you, friend, the fact that there are hypocrites does not invalidate who Jesus is. The fact that there are hypocrites simply reveals who those hypocrites are. In fact, if you really want the answer from that, John talks about that in his letter in 1 John. You can read it later for homework if you'd like. But in 1 John and in chapter number 1, you'll find this phrase. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 19, they went out from us 
but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then no doubt they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be manifest. So you know what the word manifest means? You know what that word manifest means? It means made known. So they went out from us, but they were never really of us. And the, re the reason you know they weren't really of us is because they'd gone out from us. Because if they were of us, they would have stayed here. And had they not stayed, or, or because they did not stay, they're, they're made known. That they might be made known that they were not of us at all. I can't help but think when John writes that verse, he has Judas in the back of his mind. He showed himself to be who he was. Who was he? He was an apostle. But he was an imposter. You see, the key issue in following Jesus, look here, is not who are the disciples. Who are the deacons? Who are the spiritual leaders? Who are the pastors? The key issue in following Jesus is not in who are they. The key issue in following Jesus, look very closely. The key issue in following Jesus is who is Jesus? Is Jesus who he said he was? And to answer that question, you must answer it with an unreserved yes. Jesus is who Jesus said he was. And anyone pretending to follow him, but in fact is not following, has no, it does not invalidate who Jesus was. Hypocrites can fool other people, but they cannot fool God. Sometimes we're shocked that people are trying to fool other people. Look here, you shouldn't be shocked. You shouldn't be shocked. Sometimes we're shocked when we hear something of a, of a respected leader in the church who turns away from the faith or who does some kind of atrocious deed. And there's probably a part of that, that, that that's true. It probably should shock us in some way. But we should always be reminded that you and I do not ever know the condition of someone's heart. You can only know the condition of your own heart. So many times what we find ourselves doing is we, we find ourselves asking, is it her? Is it him? Is it them? Instead of asking the better question, which is, is it I? Is it I? Is it me? We're more aware of everyone else's spiritual condition, but we have no discernment of our own spiritual condition. And what, this, what, this, what Judas is showing us is you can't ever know the condition of someone else's heart. So be sure that you know the condition of your own heart. And though, and though there are hypocrites, it doesn't take Jesus by surprise. Jesus knew all along. You remember what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 13? Matthew 13, you can read it later. Matthew 13, Jesus says there's good soil, there's bad soil. There's good fruit, there's bad fruit. There's wheat, there's tares. 
There's good fish, there's bad fish, and all the fish get caught in the net. Do not let a hypocrite keep you from serving Jesus. Yes? Do not let a hypocrite keep you from serving Jesus. You know why? Because God's plan doesn't stop. It moves forward. It keeps moving on. The disciples who traveled with Judas for three and a half years, they, they, they were very close to him. They walked together. They served together. They helped together. They preached together. They prayed together. Not only must this have uh, been heartbreaking to Jesus, although not surprising, it must have also been heartbreaking to the disciples who were Judas's close friend. But they did not allow a bad apple to ruin the bushel. Let, let, me, go, let me go a little, a little farther here, just to the idea about hypocrites. I'm only doing this because most of you aren't nodding your head yes just yet. If you would just agree, we'd move on to the next point. So if you want the next point, just nod your head yes. Any man who would let a hypocrite keep him from serving Jesus is a hypocrite himself. I'm going to say it again. Look here. Any man that would let a hypocrite keep him from serving Jesus is a hypocrite himself. You know how? You know, you know why? Because is it not true that there are hypocritical doctors? Doctors who pretend to want to do the good for someone else, but in fact, they're quacks. Is it not true that there are lawyers who are shysters? But if you get in legal trouble, who do you call? You still call a lawyer. Even though there are bad lawyers, you still call lawyers. Even though there are bad doctors, you still call doctors. Did you know that some money is counterfeit money? Do you know that? Some money is counterfeit money. So... Have you burnt all of your own money? Because some of it's fake? Of course not. That would be ludicrous. That would be ridiculous to do. So any man who would say, I'm not following Jesus because they're hypocrites, is a hypocrite himself. The idea that a hypocrite would keep you from following Jesus simply shows the reality that who you're following is not Really, Jesus. Judas made himself known. And Jesus had already revealed who he was. And who is Jesus? He's the virgin birth, sinless, spotless, son of God, who would die on the cross and raise from the dead, validating, proving who he was. So were you following Jesus at all? Judas also shows us, not just that they're hypocrites. I'll move on, even though some of you still are not in your head yet. Judas shows us it's possible to look saved but be lost. The Bible is very clear that a person whose life is marked by wickedness cannot be saved. A person's life who is marked by wickedness 
cannot be saved. You, you want the evidence for that? Read 1 John, read 2 John, read 3 John, read the entire book of James. I don't, have to, I don't have time today to make that entire argument, but you just read the Bible. The New Testament writers make the argument for themselves. But what you must be careful of not doing is you must be careful of not going to the opposite by saying, well, a person whose life is seemingly impeccable. Well, those people must be saved. No, 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 no. You can have a very religious, impeccable life, go to church every weekend, give to meet the needs of the poor, feed the hungry, carry your Bible, and look, be lost as a ball in high weeds. Because Judas was. That's who Judas was. And Jesus here, it's one of the twelve that dippeth with me. Notice verse 21. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. But woe to the man of whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Listen to the weight of these words. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Judas was caught in sin. Judas called an apostle. Third, Judas is condemned even as an apostle. Judas is condemned even as an apostle. Most spiritual problems that I have They do not come because of a lack of exposure to the truth. They come as a result of a lack of embracing the truth that I've been exposed to. Most problems that you have, spiritually speaking, they're not because of lack of exposure to the truth. They're a lack of embracing the truth that you already know. Think of how Judas had been exposed to the truth. He saw the miracles. He heard the messages. He watched the master. He was exposed to the truth. And yet nothing in his heart changed. You say, well, pastor, I read a verse one time that Judas, in fact, repented himself. Well, I want to show you something. Go, go to that verse. That verse is Matthew chapter 27. Look at verse 3. This is Matthew giving the same account that Mark is given in, verse, in chapter 14. If you want the other corresponding account, it's found in Luke. If you want the other corresponding account, it's found in John. So those are the four, John 12, Luke 22, Mark 14, Matthew 27. Those are the four places you can kind of read the full story of Judas. You're getting snippets from each one. But look what Matthew is doing. Matthew 27, look at verse 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed Jesus, when he saw that he was condemned, when he saw he was condemned. When, look here. 
when the reality of what Jesus said at that supper, better for this man to have not been born than to suffer the condemnation that he will suffer, when he saw that, notice, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. So it's a very interesting word there. He says he repented himself. That word repented is not the same word that Jesus used when Jesus said repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a different word for repent. The meaning of the word here is literally emotional regret. In fact, you might have a subnote in your, t in your Bible for this. It might be cross-reference in the middle. That word, that same word, if you look it up in a Bible concordance, is only used five times in the entire New Testament. It literally means regret. It can mean resented. You ever heard the word resentment? How many of you heard that word before? You know what the idea of resentment is? Biblically, the idea of resentment is the, is the biblical concept for bitterness. Resentment in the Bible isn't called resentment. It's called bitterness. We like, to, we like to cheapen bitterness because we know that's kind of a bad idea. And so we cheapen bitterness by calling it resentment. But what in fact, what it really is biblically, is it's, bit, it's bitterness. We, 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 we might would say it like, you hold a grudge. So that's what, this verse, that's what this verse is saying. He was resentful. He was bitter. He held a grudge against two, notice, and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He was bitter. He was resentful. He held a grudge against who? Well, where did he take those 30 pieces of silver? He took them to the chief priests and he throws them to them. And then the Bible says he goes out and he kills himself. And he hung himself. We see something about Judas here, do we not? That Judas, instead of accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, as his only way to have sins forgiven, Judas decided that the reason for his spiritual problem. Look, Judas decided that the reason for his spiritual problem was everyone else, not himself. But in reality, the reason for Judas's problem was himself. We love to make the reason for our problems everyone else, everything else. But in reality, most of my own struggles come as a result of not embracing the truth that God has already given to me in his word. And the same is true for you. We love to blame everyone else. We blame our friends. We blame our spouses. We blame our former bosses, we blame the government, we blame the church, we blame some man, we blame some person. This is why we do this, because the wonderful thing about bitterness, the wonderful thing about resentment is it never lets you down. 
For, for example, if someone points out that you have a problem of bitterness towards someone, if someone points out to you you're holding a grudge against a person, you're being resentful to an individual, if someone points that out to you, you immediately say things like, well, yes, but... Right? And then, after that but, B-U-T-T, not T-T, B-U-T, begins all kind of reasoning and arguing and evidence and justification for why we are in fact right in being bitter, resentful, holding a grudge against them. Someone said, and I think appropriately, bitterness is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. They give you all kinds of reasons, all kinds of justification for why you can do to someone else what you're currently doing. Every wrong, every failure is attributable to that person, not to you. Everyone who disagrees with you is another example of some kind of hardship that you have to face. And there's no escaping it. There's no escaping the root of bitterness. That's how the Bible defines it. It's a root of bitterness that lives inside of you and me, which grows up, the Bible says, and it chokes out life. And once you let the root of bitterness grow, the only flower that blooms is a bitter one. That's Judas Iscariot. Our heart, a heart that blooms the flowers of bitterness not a heart in bloom with the lily of the valley. You say, Pastor, I, perhaps I, I, I'm living with a spirit of bitterness, resentment. What, what, what should I do? I'll give to you three things very quickly. First, you must take responsibility for your own actions. You must take responsibility for your own actions. Judas is not a human robot. Judas is a man who will bear in the final judgment responsibility for his own choices. Judas freely chose to do what he did and Judas will be fully accountable for the things that he did. But Judas is not the only person who's fully accountable and who freely chose. You and I are fully accountable for our own choices. And listen, friend, you and I freely chose to do what we did. Whatever it is. You want to be set free from the root of bitterness? First, take responsibility 
I was wrong. Not, not, not this one. Not this one. This, this one is what we're really good at. I was wrong, but I only did that because... I was wrong, period, end of sentence, nothing else needed, no other, no other justification. Not, I was wrong, but do you want to know why? No, 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 just, I was wrong. We must take responsibility. Second, we must accept the love of Christ. It's true, is it not, that you and I have done things that are wrong? So, so what do we do when we've done something that we know was wrong? We take that wrong thing to the one person who can forgive you fully and freely of it. And that one person is Jesus Christ. And you know what he offers you in return? Psalms 51, he offers you in your return a clean heart. Bring me your dirty heart, I'll make it clean. Bring me your dead heart, I'll make it alive. Bring me your sinful heart, I'll fill it with righteousness. Bring me your bitter heart, and I'll replace it with joy. Bring me your covetous heart, and I'll fill it with contentment. Bring me your selfish heart, and I'll fill it with selflessness. Bring me your heart that's cantankerous and grumpy and always fighting and always nitpicking, and I'll give you in return a heart of peace and satisfaction. That is the promise from Christ. That is the promise of Christ. But you must accept the love of Christ. And Christ does love you. Christ loved you just like he loved Judas. He washed Judas' feet. He gave Judas opportunity after opportunity to repent all the way to the end. But Judas walked away from the love of Christ. It's a reminder that when someone goes to hell, they do not go to hell unloved. They go to hell unsaved. No, they are loved. They're loved by Christ, but they have rejected the love. I gotta, I gotta hurry, last one. You must take responsibility. You must accept the love of Christ. And third, which is where we began on this point, you must embrace God's truth for your life. You must embrace God's truth for your life. How do we overcome a bitter, resentful, holding grudge heart? How do we keep from going down the path of Judas? We must embrace the truth of God for our lives. So here's the question, where do we find God's truth? Well, John, the apostle, tells us what God's truth is. In John chapter 10, he says, Thy word is truth. So to embrace the truth of God means that we are taking the word of God and we're handling whatever problem, whatever crisis, whatever thing we're facing in this life, we're handling it the way the Bible tells us to handle it. We're not handling it the way we think or the way they think or the way my friend did one time or what I saw this other person do. I'm handling it according to 
the word of God. Embrace God's truth.